But I do want to give you this material. It's perhaps the most unique of the material we're going to be looking at because of the radical difference. Remember, what we've been talking about is the difference between Roman Catholicism and, let's say, an evangelical Bible-believing church. And we've already talked about the differences of authority and the differences uh, on their view of how the problem of sin is fixed and differences on the doctrine of justification. Now we're going to talk about the big difference that we have in our perspective about Mary. And this is what this covers. And there's some unique things that Roman Catholicism believes about Mary that is way beyond the boundaries of Scripture. But remember, because of their, the authority of sacred tradition and papal infallibility, this is how these unique beliefs came into existence. It's very important you get that because you, you, you'd be perplexed otherwise. Where did they find that in the Bible would be your continuous question. And they would say they found it in the other half of God's word. You say the other half of God's word. Remember, they consider sacred tradition and the word of God in a written form as one total composite of God's word. So there is the written word and the orally transmitted word. So that's the way they look at things. Now, when you look at Mary, I mean, we all have to, we all have to acknowledge that she was put in an incredible privileged position. She would be the human agent by which God would bring about the incarnation, the fact that God became man, and it was through the virgin birth that this became a reality. You've got a verse there at the top of John 1.14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as the glory of the only begotten Father from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, all that happened because Mary was a willing servant of the Lord, willing actually at some risk at some personal danger. You say there's personal danger in this? Yes, uh, because she was betrothed, which would be equivalent to be engaged, but in, in Judaism, if you were betrothed to somebody, it's the same as being married to them. You just haven't had the consummation ceremony yet. But you were considered to be the wife of somebody, even at the point of engagement. So in other words, think of it that way. In America, if you got engaged and they started calling you the wife of so-and-so, and so she was already considered to be that. Now, the problem is if you're found pregnant, which would be normally the sign of unfaithfulness, that you broke the marriage covenant, your parents organized that marriage. Remember, a lot of times when I was in youth ministry, kids would ask me, what does the Bible say about dating? And I would say nothing <laughs> because it doesn't know anything. It was every, all the marriages were arranged. Now it's got principles and such in scripture that would apply to the concept, our concept of dating. But in this case, she could have been stoned to death. And it was Joseph we're going to read in Matthew chapter one, who is trying to figure out what to do here. Because remember, Mary didn't say, oh, yeah, it was Louis from down the street. Unfortunately, we had a meeting that we shouldn't have had. No, she was saying that the Holy Spirit of God is the source 
of her pregnancy. And you could be sure that that had, had to be hard to believe <laughs> for a man, a man who's engaged. And he gets a special visit from Gabriel to explain it, that, that she was right. And we'll see that. Now, in that next paragraph under the verse, Mary was a wonderful servant of Yahweh who played a significant role in the miracle of the virgin birth of our Lord on that first Christmas morning. At that moment, the Lord of the universe entered the world that he created. And for the first time in the history of humanity, God, man, walked among us. Colossians 2.9 said, in him is the fullness of deity in a bodily form. It's amazing. Since then, there has never been anyone like the only begotten Son of God, who is the Messiah and the exclusive Savior of the world. Now, the significance of the virgin birth, I don't have it down here, but the significance of it is that Jesus escaped the racial contamination of sin. He was born without sin, and he never committed sin. And that made him the perfect sacrifice. A question was asked to me just Saturday, what's more significant, the life or the death of Christ? And the answer is both. Because his life, through his life, you have a demonstration of someone who consistently did the will of God, consistently conformed to the law, never stepped beyond it, and who is described as sinless, who never did any sin. Matter of fact, it just makes the whole crucifixion even more horrific because it was the crucifixion or the putting to death of the most perfectly innocent man who ever walked on earth. No sin in him and no sin from him. And that was because of the virgin birth. That was the necessary profound wisdom of God in bringing that about. Next paragraph. Mary is said to descend on her father's side from the tribe of Judah and from her mother's side from the tribe of Levi. There's some debate as to whether Mary was born in Bethlehem or Judea or Nazareth in Galilee. But there's no debate about her genealogical connection to King David and Father Abraham. She and Joseph were in the family tree of the Messiah. And you could look at that in Luke 3 when we... I don't know what we'll do today, but Matthew chapter 1, 16 through 17. She was the only person on earth, now get this, who was there at the birth of the Lord, and she was the only person who was there at the death of our Lord. Of course, she was intimately involved in the birth, and there she was at the death of our Lord. Why is it significant that she's attached to Abraham to David, Solomon, and others in that genealogical record. Why is that so important? Pardon me? It was fulfillment of a prophecy. What kind of prophecy? Made to who? Yeah, the pro remember the Davidic covenant, they call that, that you could read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the angel appeared to David and said, from your own blood will come one who will have a throne and he'll reign forever. So Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. And so if anyone was to come from Mary or Joseph, they too would have to have this intimate link with the genealogical connection, and they were. Now, what you have listed down bef 
below are the only passages in all the Bible that mention Mary. The only passages in the Bible, and we're going to look at a few uh, just to, uh, matter of fact, look, look with me in Luke chapter 1. We'll begin there. We're, we're probably going to be in Luke 1 and Luke 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and maybe Matthew 2. But let's take a look at the passage in Luke uh, because that is significant here. In Luke chapter 1, and I want to pick it up in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth. The sixth month, by the way, is a reference to Elizabeth, who was related to Mary, because God had promised to Zacharias, her husband, who was a part of the high priestly line, that they would have a son, but they were probably well into their 60s or 70s and even perhaps early 80s. So the idea of having a, a child would have to be done miraculously. <laughs> and, and it was. So now this woman, Elizabeth, think of her, you know, maybe 71. Let's pick that. And she's six months pregnant <laughs> at this time, you see. And it says, the angel Gabriel came to the city of Nazareth, verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, Yahshua, uh, Joshua. Uh, it means that salvation is from the Lord. So his name was descriptive of his work. So he would be named him. Mary and Joseph did not have to go and buy a baby book name, book. It, the name was already selected uh, and, and it's selected for a good reason. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This is amazing. To Mary, this had to be brand new truth. They always thought of the coming Messiah, but they thought he would be just a man. Just a man like David was, Solomon. Extraordinary man, an unusual man, uniquely gifted man, but a man nonetheless. But now she's told that he's going to be the son of God. Um, what that meant to the Jewish mind is that he bore the same nature as God. That makes him what? God. So he's God and he is the promised Messiah, is what she was told. It had to be... That had to be amazing to her. 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Wow. So this son somehow has to be eternal. Why? How long is his kingdom? Forever. <laughs> That's a long time. So he, he would be this king forever. 
Verse 32, uh, 4, I should say, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Once again, highlighting the divinity of Jesus. This is more than just, and you're, you're gonna, it's not just having an extraordinary son who is unusually gifted, a, a person like David, very ruddy, handsome, but very gifted, or Solomon, same thing, an incredibly gifted man with wisdom God gave to him. All of those things are great, but this is the very son of God that this woman was going to be involved in this birth of him and bringing him into the world. And then, of course, verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth, that would be the mother of John the Baptist. Your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren, she'd never had a child. Put it this way, barren means you've never had a child, you're not capable of having a child. And now she's in her sixth month. And verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So that's one of the first places where you find something mentioned about Mary. You see her again in verse 39 and 40, 41. It says, now at that time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Sort of a fetal adoration, I guess. <laughs> the baby is leaping in the womb, and Elizabeth was filled under the control of the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is where the Catholics got that prayer, the Hail Mary prayer, uh, part of it anyways. In verse 43, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now, that's interesting. The Spirit of God had to reveal that to her, that that baby is the Lord. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in the womb for joy. You know what that means? That a baby in the womb is not just a mass of fetal tissue. You see, it, joy is one of the attributes of personality. To be a person, you have to have intellect, emotions, and will. And joy is a reaction of gladness uh, which would flow. So we find Mary, we find Elizabeth, go over to the second chapter. Uh, I, I wish I could read the Magnificat, the Magnificat, which is verses 46 through 55. That's Mary's uh, worshiping prayer for being allowed to be in this privileged position. Uh, in chapter 2, now in those days, the decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. And this was the first census taken while Quadrinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census to each his own city. And the reason for the census is kind of twofold, taxes and enlistment in the military. <laughs> and that's why they took him. Uh, 
Joseph, verse 4, also went up to Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. It, it always, such an incredible event is covered in one verse. <laughs> it seems like there should have been a lot more to it, you know, but just in one verse, you've got God in the flesh now on planet Earth. And he's wrapped in torn up clothing, cloths, and he's laid in a feeding trough, not a bassinet. That's what a manger is. It's a feeding trough. Sometimes people think it's a place. It's not. It's a, you know, it's just a trough, the place where animals eat. Um, and then, of course, you know the story of the shepherds and what the shepherds were told about this baby. It's always been interesting to me that God didn't send an angel to tell the leadership of Judaism, the high priest, the Sanhedrin members, hey, the Messiah is born, going to be born today. But he went to the outcast. Uh, everybody hated uh, the shepherds. Matter of fact, the high priest used to say, a shepherd's testimony is never valid because they're always liars. So they were just completely isolated, segregated from... And the other thing that the priest didn't like is that they did not, uh, you know, uh, particularly obey all of the mandates of cleansing and such. They weren't always there for the Sabbath. They weren't always at the synagogues. Where were they? The sheep. The sheep. Yet they were the ones who provided the sacrifices for them, you know. So it's always amazing to me that that's where our Lord goes, to the shepherds. And he, they're the first ones to get the good news. Just a few people. And he says to them in verse, what is it, 8, I think, in that second chapter. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the and I would be too. Uh, by the way, when you're out there in the field, there are no street lights. <laughs> it's pitch black. The only thing you had for any light was the fire, the fire that you set. But the shepherd was not always by the fire. Sometimes they would have to make their own personal fire because they were wherever the sheep were. And so suddenly this angelic being appears and they're frightened. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news. That's Yoan Galizzo. That's where we get evangelism from, that word, good news. Of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you, look at this, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wow. Now, this is kind of unusual. They, when they thought of a savior, when first century Jews thought of a savior, it was rescuing them from Roman oppression or any nation that was oppressing them. And they thought of a savior as someone 
who would deliver them from that circumstance, the weightiness of being taxed by an occupying nation and its military. And they thought also that if they got a savior who is the Messiah, he would also set them uh, in a position like Israel had back in the day under King David and under King Solomon, the golden years of prosperity. And they thought if they had a Messiah and a savior, he would enable them to be a sovereign nation once again. But you and I know the nature of his first coming because we know what he did at his first coming. We also know that the word savior here is speaking of a deliverance from a greater taskmaster than Rome or any nation. He was this, the one who would rescue you from the bondage and mastery and eternal condemnation of sin. And he's also called the Kurios, the Lord. That's the sovereign one. Uh, that means he has the one who's the right to reign over all he's created. And that when he gives a command, he can anticipate your obedience. So he's Savior, Lord, and then the Christos, the Christ. He is the Messiah. You see, yeah. You know, it never occurred to me until now how, I don't know how many of you memorized in uh, the shepherd's game anyway. Yeah. I was just saying it to myself. Yeah. And I have thought, because I grew up with, we read and I had memorized the story. Maybe it was to overcome the importance of was the night before Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, when I did a class not too, a couple, about almost a year ago, I did a class on um, uh, dealing with the myths surrounding Christmas. And if there's any place where there's a lot of mythical stuff being born, it's when and it's at the birth of Christ. Uh, because first of all, at the very birth of Christ, there were only Joseph and Mary and then the baby. There was no drummer boy. Uh, you know, there wasn't the wise men. The wise men didn't come till two years later, and they came to a house. You know, so a lot of the stuff that we, you know, and then finally, after the baby was born, shortly after the baby was born, then the shepherds showed up. The shepherds came. Because you don't know how yeah. far away Yeah, yeah. They had to be near somewhere, but they came. So, what, matter of fact, you can see um, look at verse 14, and suddenly there appeared an angel with a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Now, it's a very interesting passage uh, because it talks about uh, not peace on earth, but uh, peace among those with whom God is well pleased. It's those who know the Lord, the pe people who know the Lord. Uh, by the way, notice it says that they were saying and not singing. <laughs> so you had this angelic host in heaven saying the same thing. It's almost like an incantation. The only difference is that everything they said was true. And verse 15, when the angel had gone away from them in heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he laid in the manger. Remember, they were told that they would find that child, the baby over in verse 12. You find the sign 
is that you'll find the baby wrapped in cloths laying in a manger. Now on that day, how many babies? Now remember, at that time, Bethlehem was pretty packed out. That's why there was no room for them in the inn because everybody was there because of the census, which by the way, was sovereignly directed. <laughs> so that Jesus would be born, as the Bible says in Micah chapter five and verse two, in the city of Bethlehem, the Messiah would be born because Joseph and Mary were working and living where? Nazareth, some 80 miles away, you see. And so now God orchestrates the census. Jesus is born on that day. An incredible thing happens. Um, and uh, so they, they had it pretty simple. All they had to do is find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a feeding trough. And again, how many of you think were laying in a feeding trough that night? <laughs> so God made it simple for them. <laughs> you see, and they, they probably even said, what? Wait a minute, that's not a way to treat a brand newborn. You wrap them in torn up clothing and then you put them inside a feeding trough. That's not a way for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one that you told us about. But that's the way that they found that child uh, and then it says, as we're reading on in the story, uh, verse 16, so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he was laying in the manger. And when they had seen them, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. So anyways, we're just looking at the few, our job right now is just to look at the few places where Mary is mentioned in the Bible. Look in Matthew chapter one, and then many of the other ones, I'm just gonna, because of time, yeah, because of time, I'm gonna have to let you look at them on your own, but I'll point them out to you. In Matthew chapter one and verse 18, it's another birth record passage of scripture it says now the birth of Jesus was as followed when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together so she was a virgin uh, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit and Joseph her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her planned to send her away secretly remember he had several options one of them bring her to the elders of the city who would examine this, can you imagine? How did you get pregnant? By the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, what's his first name? What's his real name? No, it was the Holy Spirit, you know, <laughs> the poor girl. He could have done that, and then the end of that would have been, she would have been stoned to death because she broke the marital covenant. But he, he was a good man. He, he saw the good character in Mary, and he didn't want her to have her life end that way. So he's trying to figure a way. He had a, he had a divorce certificate. That's what it means about putting her away. It's the divorce certificate. He was going to give her that divorce certificate and put her away secretly. He wasn't gonna make a big public thing. He wasn't gonna tell the high priest. He wasn't gonna tell the rulers. He was just gonna do it on his own. Uh, but he didn't uh, because this interruption of what happened here in this uh, situation. 
Verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So there's an affirmation. Yep, that this is how the conception had its start. It's from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and again, here's the name, and you shall call his name Yahshua, Jesus, or salvation comes from God, for he will save his people from, from their sins. That's why he's called. Matter of fact, in the Bible, a lot of times, Jesus will even say, if you believe in my name, or John says, everyone who received him and believed in his name uh, becomes a child of God. Well, in other words, his name, Yahshua Amashiach, Christ is not a last name. It's another description. Uh, it describes him as Messiah. So he is Yahshua, the salvation that comes from God, and he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. So if you believe that to be true, you believe in a person of Christ, you believe in the work of Christ, then you will be saved. And so... Um, verse 21 says, and she will bear a son, and she'll, you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. It says, behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And God translates what that means, which means God with us. So these names are significant. All the names, Emmanuel, God with us. That reminds me again of Colossians 2.9. For in him is the fullness of deity in a bodily form. God with us. Uh, and that's an amazing, amazing truth. So now look at that sheet here, and I'm just going to point out a few things. Uh, in, after the, it says Joseph's dream there, it's a one, two, three, four, five, the sixth one, the birth of our Lord, we just read. The visit of the shepherds, we just read. Jesus presented uh, in, in Mary's purification. We're not going to have a chance to look at that. But uh, after the eighth day of a child, child was presented, circumcised, and given a name. Uh, the visit of the Magi. Uh, and then remember, that's two years later, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. And Mary is named there as well. Uh, the flight to Egypt and return. Uh, Matthew 2, 13 through 14, Mary is named there along with Joseph as he makes his way to Egypt to protect the baby from Herod, who went and had all the kids, what was it, below three or four years old, two years old, had all the children slaughtered in that town. And then Jesus in the temple, remember he was around 12 years old, uh, Luke chapter 2, 41 through 51, Mary and Joseph are looking for him. Mary's name there as well. The wedding feast of Canaan in John chapter 2. You remember that, Jesus interacting with Mary. And there Christ did the first miracle. And then Mary and our brother, Lord's brothers, came to speak with him. I do want you to look at that one, Luke chapter 8, just to make sure you see that. Luke chapter 8 because there's a, a significant truth that goes along with this. Luke chapter 8. And uh, we are looking at verses 19 through 21. It says, And his mother 
and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. What an interesting statement. What Christ is saying to you and I is the best way to have an intimate relationship that exceeds the relationship of Mary and the brothers, the biological half-brothers of Jesus. If you want to have an intimate relationship with him, then the way you do it is to hear his word and do it. And that word here, akeo, doesn't just mean like with your ears. It means to hear it attentively with the ambition to take what you are instructed in hearing and doing it, you see. It's very, very important, very important. Uh, so again, uh, these are places where Mary's mentioned. She's not mentioned in name, but she's nonetheless the one who was there. If you look in Acts, or Luke chapter 11, just quickly, again, Luke chapter, all I'm doing is showing you different places uh, where she is mentioned. In Luke chapter 11, um, in verse uh, 27, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Who was the, who's the one who bore Christ and nursed Christ? So this lady is saying, Wow! The individual had that privilege. What divine favor. That's what the word blessed means here. It's more than happiness here. It's you've been favored by God to have this privilege. What a privilege. But then the Lord says something shocking. He said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So he said, listen, you want a greater relationship with me than Mary and my brothers? Hear my word and do it. If you want to have a more intimate relationship with me, more than Mary had with me, the woman who nursed me, the woman who gave birth to me, then the same thing. You hear the word and you observe it. You do it. So it's an interesting bit of information. Let's go down uh, that list. We're going to get to the finish here. Um, take a, uh, sorry about that. Matthew chapter 13. Because I want you to see where the brothers and, and sisters of Jesus are found mentioned in Scripture. What does that mean? In one verse I didn't read at the end of that, um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the verse 25 I didn't read, which it says, and Joseph kept her a virgin until Jesus gave birth then they had a normal marriage relationship. And from that normal relationship come other children, sons and daughters uh, for Joseph and Mary. If you look at verse, um, I want to pick it up at, what did I say, Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his own hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. 
and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And then they said, look at this. Is this not the carpenter's son? Who's the carpenter? Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, and they name them James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and his sisters, which are not named, but he had sisters, at least more than one. Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do miracles, many miracles there because of their um, unbelief. So he comes to his own town, Nazareth, and they're mad because they said, this is the kid that used to run around the streets. What do you mean? He's the Joseph's son. And Mary, we know his brothers, his sisters. Where does he get up presenting himself as the Messiah and doing all of these miraculous things? He's a fraud. That's probably what they thought. They probably bought into what the... Pharisees said about Jesus that Jesus was a demon-possessed Samaritan who did miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the devil. So there was a rejection. So all of that, these, all of these verses, and I'm giving them to you because that's the only things that are said about Mary. Matter of fact, let me show you the final place where she's Mary, Mary is mentioned by name, and that's in Acts. This is in the book of Acts, chapter 1. <clears throat> Acts, chapter 1. And we want to look at 12 and 13. Now, let me set it up for you. Listen to what happened. Jesus went to the cross. And by the way, Mary's mentioned as being at the foot of the cross. We didn't read that passage, but it's one of the ones you have there. He was buried... And then he rose again, and 40 days later, according to the uh, Acts chapter 1, uh, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And so now, after the ascension, we pick up the story of what was going on in the church. It says, then they return, verse 12, to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Eliphaz, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's, that's not Judas Iscariot. That's a different one. They all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You just read the last time that Mary is ever referred to in Scripture. So now, let's turn to the Catholic idea of Mary, um, which is beyond Scripture. Next page. It says, the Bible never says that Mary was anyone but an, uh, an, extra, uh, but an ordinary human whom God had chose in an, to use in an extraordinary way. Yes, Mary was a righteous woman and favored with God's grace. By the way, if you're born again, you're favored with God's grace too. Just keep that in mind. At the same time, Mary was a sinful, 
being who needed Christ Jesus as her Savior, just like everyone else. In her Magnificat, her worship praise, she calls God her Savior. You don't need a Savior unless you're a sinner. Next paragraph, because of the three source reference that formulate the doctrines and dogmas of Roman Catholicism, or Roman Catholic Church, they believe and teach at least 10 additional doctrines that formulate Mariology. Mariology is the study of Mary. Yes, sir. Which one? Oh, the paragraph up above, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I believe this is at the same time Mary was a sinful human Yeah. Who needed Jesus Christ as her Savior to everyone else. But why would God choose, why would God choose Mary, a sinful being, for Jesus to be born in? Yeah. Why would God choose, like, Jesus as this pure, I mean, why would he choose this person, Mary? Yeah. Yeah, no, great question. And it has a lot to do going all the way back to the fall with Adam, the man, being the federal head of humanity. So when Adam fell into sin, even though Eve was the first one who committed sin, Adam is held and responsible for it. Uh, Romans 5.12, it said, for by one man sin entered the world. He said, wait a minute, it started with Eve. But the scripture said it's the man because he's responsible. In Jewish theology and in our theology, we would understand that that sin is transmitted to all of humanity through the man. So she was born, yes, a person who had been touched by original sin, a sinner by nature and practice. But it's believed that the transmission of sin comes through the man. So the man is eliminated, Joseph. He's not engaged in this. And a miracle occurs that this woman, a person who's born a sinner just like everyone else, miraculously bears a child who escapes the consequence of Adam's sin. That's how that happened. <laughs> it's kind of a detailed discussion on that, but more than I wanted to give you. And anyways, let's take a look at these 10 extra views. These are beyond the pale of scripture. And remember, these come because how many authorities do we have at NCC? One. How many authorities do they have in the Catholic Church? The Bible, sacred tradition, papal infallibility. That papal infallibility means that at any time, a pope can declare a new teaching in Roman Catholicism and it becomes an official teaching, it's not capable of error, not capable of being reformed. It is the Word of God in the spoken traditional manner. We're going to actually see some of that here coming up. So number one, Roman belie Rome believes, and when it says Rome, it means Roman Catholic Church. Rome believes that when Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother, she was preserved and protected from the taint of original sin. This is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. This dogma was proclaimed by Pope Pius IX on December 8, 1854. We read this in the Catholic Catechism. Here's the quote. 
through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her, her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of the Almighty God and by the virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved, immune, immune from all stain of original sin. So the Catholics believe that Mary did not get touched by original sin. She entered this world as someone who did not have the imputation of sin from Adam. So number two is connected to that. The Roman Catholic Church also teaches that in the consequence of a special privilege of grace from God, Mary was free from every personal sin during her whole life. That comes from the fundamentals of Catholic dogma. I'm quoting them, not some outside source, uh, to make sure you get that. Uh, that the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the moment of her conception by a singular act of grace, the privilege of the Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Christ Jesus, Savior of the world. I'm quoting the wrong one. Sorry about that. Go back to number two. I got tied up with the fundamentals of the Catholic dogma. Right after it mentions the page where it's on, this view was endorsed by Augustine, which is shocking to me because he was so right on. Again, the Catechism declares that by the grace of God, Mary remained free from every personal sin her whole life long. So get this. She was born without sin, and she never sinned. That's according to Catholic theology. You say, where do you get that? Well, you don't get it from the scriptures. Right. What happened, and remember, this is how Catholic tradition becomes dogma. It's first believed by the general community. And it's believed by the leadership, whatever this new teaching is. And then in time, because it's been around and traditionally believed, then finally the Pope recognizing that the church in general has believed this concept, he dogmatizes it. He makes it an official, he makes it an official doctrine because remember, he is the succeeder of Peter, according to their teaching. It's not true in Scripture, but in their teaching, he succeeds Peter. He is the vicar of Christ on earth. In other words, the Pope is considered to be Christ himself, the substitute of Christ on earth. Now, the Bible tells you that the substitute of Christ on the earth is the Holy Spirit. But in Catholic teaching, they teach that uh, the Pope is that. So he has succession authority. His connection with Peter, remember Peter received divine revelation. We have two books and places where, you know, so that means that the current Pope can receive divine revelation. And so he just simply takes what has been collectively believed for some period of time and he declares it an official teaching in the church. Where's the Bible say about it? Nothing. Remember, the last time we saw Mary, she was at the first church meeting with 120 people. She was the one of the 120 after the ascension of Christ. And then we don't hear about her ever again. 
We do know that she lived with the Apostle John because Jesus told John to take care of his mother from the cross. But at, that's about all we know is, uh, and then she fades from the scene. Number three, Rome also believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary. The dogma of perpetual virginity of Mary was proclaimed by the Council of Trent in 1545 and 63. The Catechism affirms the following. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess. Remember, this is again, it's percolating. It's believed in the church. It percolates to the point of a corporate confession. Led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctify it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary, uh, Erapathanas, which means ever virgin, ever virgin. That's what that word means. So the Catholic Church, now get this, look at what we've learned. The Catholic Church believes that Mary entered the world with no sin. Mary never sinned. And Mary was a perpetual virgin, which, by the way, brings this to the logical conclusion. Joseph was a perpetual virgin. <laughs> That's the harder one for me to get, being a guy. <laughs> but, yeah, he, she was not. Remember, it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25, he kept her a virgin until... What do you think the word until means in the Greek language? Until she gave birth. And then they had a regular marriage. How do we know they had a regular marriage? Because they had children, you see. But in the Catholic Church, they're going to reason away the fact that she, was, she had children. Uh, if you look at number four, when Protestants object to Mary's perpetual virginity by pointing to those texts, that refer to the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And all those passages <laughs> mention the brothers and sisters. Rome responds in this way. Here it is, their quote, their words. The church has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. Now you say, where do you get that? What evidence do you have of that? You don't. In other words, am I going to take the Bible for what it literally and basically says? In Matthew chapter 13, it mentions Joseph and Mary, and it names their sons and says they have sisters. Or am I going to believe a church that says, no, it wasn't Mary. See, this is what happens to you when you don't exegete, you don't extract the intended meaning of Scripture, and you establish a doctrine. You're always left trying to defend that doctrine absent of Scripture authority, because that's where it came from, absent of Scriptural authority. So you're coming up with a defense, and that one is a weak one. If there's ever one there is, it's a weak one. Top of page three, 
those are close relations of Jesus according to the Old Testament expression, according to the Catholic Catechism, again, that's where their beliefs come from. Number five, even if Mary did not have other children, this does not prove she remained a virgin all her life. This doctrine would also require us to believe in the perpetual virginity of Joseph. This, is the, this idea would appear to be uh, based in part on ascetic, unbiblical view of sex, according to which sexual relationships within marriage are defiling or demeaning. Now that goes against the word of God. Um, the, the whole thing of ascetic, uh, there, asceticism is basically the idea that you win favor with God or you can even enter a relationship with God if you deprive yourself of the natural blessings of God in life. Like certain food or marriage. So you don't enjoy the natural blessings of life. You're dedicated entirely to God and that wins you an extra dose of favor of God as if you need that for salvation, as if the cross work of Christ is insufficient to that end. So you have to go and deprive yourself of these things. And of course, that's not true. If you look in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, let me show you that quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 4. What am I doing? Not so good. 1 Timothy 4 and 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, in order to teach these demonic doctrines, they have to have a cauterized conscience, a conscience that's not sensitive to the truth. Men, verse 3, now look at this. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be great, gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. God said it is good. Have you ever seen at the end of Genesis... God's summary of everything he created, the Lord said, it is good. It is very good. And then he created marriage. He's the one. It wasn't Joseph. Joseph wasn't in the garden, you know, plowing away, enjoying this phenomenal garden. No weeds. No fall. Everything it plant grows, bears fruit. He was just enjoying that. It wasn't, he didn't look up and said, God, this is wonderful. Where are the girls? It was God, Gen Genesis 2 and verse 18. God who said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So it was not a complaint of Adam. It's the wisdom of God. And then he said, I will create with him a co-leader. No. <laughs> he said, I would create for him one who corresponds to him. That's what the word in Hebrew means. One who is like him, but her role would be different. 
she would literally come alongside and help him. Help him do what? Well, he was just given authority over God's creation. So she would assist him. And that would be the end result in marriage. Then from that point on, God looks ahead to all future relationships between a man and a woman. And he says, for this cause, Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother, his established family, and he will cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So God establishes marriage, and it's a good thing. So people deny marriage and say that that somehow wins them favor, makes them more right with God, are beyond the pale of Scripture, or denying certain foods. All of that stuff means that there's some, it, it implies this, there's some insufficiency in the cross work of Christ that I have to meet. And that's never true. You understand that? Never true. All right. Um, number six, Rome also teaches the dogma of Mary's bodily assumption. This belief about Mary was officially defined by an infallible declaration from Pope Pius XII in 1950. So what does that mean? That means that when Mary, according to Catholic beliefs, now keep in mind, the Catholics say she's born without sin. The Catholics say she never committed sin. Uh, the Catholics say she's perpetually a virgin. And now they're saying when she died, her body was not buried. Her body was instantly assumed into heaven. That's called the assumption. So if you drive around the community, you're going to come across uh, a church called, the Roman Catholic Church called the Assumption Church or the Assumption Catholic Church. It's not buried, not based on anything about the ministry of Christ. It's based upon the Mary being the belief that she was taken up into heaven. So keep in mind that doctrine was believed, percolated to the leadership level, acknowledged that it was believed by the Catholics in general, and then sanctioned or dogmatized by the Pope in 1950. And so that became a reality. There's a statement from the Catholic Catechism right under number six. Finally, the Immaculate Virgin uh, preserved free from all stain of original sin. Remember, that's the Immaculate Conception. When in the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted the, by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be more than fully conformed to her son, the Lord of Lords and conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and in anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. So she was sort of resurrected, if you will, but not brought to life, just taken in her dead condition into heaven. The, yes? mentioned it twice now. Mm -hmm. The general Roman Catholic population believes something, so the oral tradition, and it gets so widespread right. that then the Pope dogmatizes it. Yeah. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I always grew up thinking that the Pope had all this authority and made all the final decisions, mm -hmm. and it sounds like it's more he just rubber stamps yeah. What the general Catholic population has right. all of a sudden decided right. to believe. 
Right, but they also have rejected, yeah, they, the popes have also rejected, have not given uh, the dogma to certain beliefs that were perpetuated and they were, they were argued about. One of them that we're going to look at is uh, the appearances of the Lady of Fatima or the Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, those have not been like dogmatized. They're held beliefs, you know, by people, but he is not, none of the popes so far have said, yeah, that's got the official stamp of the Pope on it, because all they have is eyewitness testimony of people who claim that they saw Jesus. I know that they did not see something from heaven. You say, how do you know? Because of what these visions, they call them apparitions, said. They talked about Mary as being the perpetual virgin and the Mary who was assumed into heaven. Well, that's not in the scripture. The Bible warns us that if a prophet comes along and he tells you something that's contrary to the word of God, he's not a prophet of God. It didn't come from God. So what these apparitions said, and maybe that's their problem, the apparitions said, that she said, are an affirmation of the stuff we just read that is not found in scripture. Now, it would have been different if an angel Gabriel actually appeared to some kids and said, you know what? I got something. Go and tell the Pope. Mary was a wonderful person, an extraordinary person. I blessed her with that privilege, but nothing more. Calm down. <laughs> you know. Like <laughs> Pardon me? It sort of sounds like UFOs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right, uh, Paul, and there is a sense in which the percolation of the beliefs of the people becomes widespread, acknowledged, and then put the imprimatur on it. Boom. It's an official belief. But not everything gets up there. Matter of fact, this is the last one we've had. The the one in eighteen or nineteen fifty four. We haven't had one. Last week you mentioned about the, the current Pope is so liberal yes. that people are concerned that he's gonna dogmatize liberal sexuality or liberal right or matter of fact our good issues. right our good friend uh, an elder uh, Bruce Scheidhauer sent me an article that was written just last week on that concern uh, conservative Roman Catholics are very concerned since the Pope comes from the Jesuit stock that is the liberal branch of Catholicism that he is going to maybe dogmatize a homosexual marriage uh, in other words, as something that can be done in the Catholic Church. And so there is a concern about that, that he might do that, because he's already said things like that. You know, he's already said things like that. And so there's a concern that he, being so liberal, that he is going to simply sanction what the liberal branch of Catholicism has wanted for such a long time. The Jesuits don't even believe in the and the idea that the Bible is the Word of God. The, the, the Jesuits believe that it, it tells story about, stories about God. Uh, I met a Jesuit priest when I was in Antioch, Illinois, and he was saying to me, he said, you don't believe that, because uh, I was telling him that we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. And he was sitting there with a little smirk on his face, you know, and he said, uh, you don't believe that a man was eaten by a fish, do you? 
and you know, spent three days in the belly of a fish? And I said, I absolutely do. He said, on, on, the, on the basis of what? So I showed him from Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus speaks about Jonah in a historical manner and uses him as a symbol of his own three days in the tomb. So I told him, I said, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. You know, <laughs> if he says that it's real, that the man was a historical figure, and by the way, it's a perfect example of what's going to happen to me when I'm in the belly of the earth for three days. And so, but they don't believe that. They, they, he told me, he said, no, that's just, it's just a sort of a fairy tale that's told to make a point for life. He didn't tell me what the point for life was. Stay away from water yeah, with big fish. Or, I don't know. Yeah. I, I um, and I know that this will increase in a later days that people seek what they want to hear. Yes. And they will seek those things in, in the individuals, the other individuals. If somebody will tell them even the truth, yeah. Not accept that because right. they will think that. Uh, well, I, I can't commit to that except yeah. really surrendering to God. Yes. Yeah. And we must spend majority of time in the Bible, in the Living Word. If we do not do that, and we just pursue, even could be like great books. Correct. And we pursue it on just that. Right. And then that's how I think people coming up with the, their own imagination and thinking, and they are assuming this is correct because yeah. now they are happy with that. Yeah. Instead yeah. of truly uh, prioritizing the scriptures. Correct. Very I mean, correct. It's, it's yeah. just mm -hmm. incredible. And you could see that. I, I, ex I even experienced myself that um, somebody was telling me a, a while back. Um, um, I met with them, you know, and I thought we had the same belief, but then they turned around and gave me the book about like a uh, hundred different reasons why you should believe in that. Yeah. What in the world? You have one um, Bible. How yeah. many different reasons? I mean, I remember like you were saying, I think last time, you know, you have scriptures. There's 66. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I mean, what else do you need? What else are yeah. you seeking? Yeah. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. So, that's, I mean, it's, it's yeah, the, the, the key. The key. The key is the scripture. That's right. And just surrender to those scriptures. One of the, the problems that you often have, and sometimes even in evangelical churches, is that people will profess that they believe in the Bible that they believe that the Bible is God's word, but in practice, they don't believe in its sufficiency. The Roman Catholic is a system is a horrible example, well, primary example, of people who do not believe in the sufficiency of the scripture. What do I mean by that? That the Bible tells us everything we need for faith and practice. We don't need anything extra. But whenever you're involved in extra biblical stuff, you're, you're testifying, I don't believe in the sufficiency of it. Oh, it's also popular to go after other authors. Pardon me? Everyone else, everyone else is going after 
else is going after the other authors is yeah. popular. Yeah, yeah. So people do that all the time. I always get people that, one time I was in a Christian bookstore and I saw the book uh, The Shack, yeah. which really is a distortion of the Trinity, yeah. you know, and it's a story, you know. Right. And so I asked the uh, lady who was the manager, I said, do you know about this? Well, oh, this book has changed my life, she said. And I said, I, as far as I know, the only book that'll change your life is scripture. Right. You know, and then I told her, I said, don't you understand? Oh, but I just feel so much closer to God. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a step away from the sufficiency of scripture. You know, pardon me? Yeah, yeah, it's a weird, it's weird stuff. It's weird stuff. Or even the church, uh, even, even a church today that says, you know, we, we, I'll tell you what we need to do. Taking a look at our culture and seeing the vast change of women in our culture, uh, we need to be able to make women pastors in the church. And so churches do that. As a matter of fact, a guy, the guy who wrote uh, Purpose Driven Life, What's his name? Rick Warren. Argued with the Southern Baptist Convention because he ordained three women to be pastors in his church. Uh, you know what that is? That is a step away from the sufficiency of Scripture. Because the Bible tells you what leadership should be. And the Bible gives you the reasons why leadership should be a certain way. And so when you start saying, well, yeah, there's the Bible, but then there's the culture. You know, what about the culture? We, we want to be relevant. Matter of fact, he made that claim when he was arguing. He said, the church is not going to be perceived as relevant to our world. Who cares? It never perceives us as being relevant, you see. And so when you start doing that, then you start getting stuff of a strange nature, you see. And so, by the way, he's no longer a part of the Southern Baptist, at least uh, you know, they were able to do that. But, you know, anyways, our time is gone. There's some wonderful things there yet to read about those apparitions and the number seven. There are certain, the Pope hasn't dogmatized this one yet, but there are people in the Catholic Church in high levels, archbishops, bishops, who believe that Mary is co-mediatrix. What does that mean? that Mary suffered so much at the foot of the cross. She suffered unto like Jesus for our sins. Co-mediatrix means she's a redeemer just like he's a redeemer. Well, you get that. Not from the scripture, you see. So next time we get together, we're going to talk about the mass. And then we're going to wrap it up. Next time is our last time, I think. Then we're going to wrap it up with uh, some, some suggestions about, well, how do you share the gospel with your Roman Catholic family, friends, co-workers? Just some hints about doing that and doing it correctly. So there you go. I uh, wish I could have finished it all, but you can read it. You'll, you'll see it. If you have any questions, just come and see me.